every single point you put in is has to be essential if it's not essential it's distracting it's dispersing it's taking away from the the ones that are i'm michael max and this is geological i thought about just hanging up a gone fishing sign this week when it came time to sit down and share a few thoughts I don't feel like I've got much of anything to say that you might not have heard repeated countless times over the past few days. I'm not interested in adding one more voice to the din, and as a white man, I'm not even sure my voice would be welcome. In a tinder dry moment like this, I'm concerned that anything I got to say is going to draw hatred from one side of the conversation and applause from the other. Perhaps this is part of the problem. It's about one side or the other. I keep having this feeling that we're missing something here, that having a conversation beyond slogans is not possible. And so what arises in me is heartbreak. So I guess that's what I want to talk about today, heartbreak. I bring up heartbreak because it's the only true response I have in this moment that I feel like I can stand up for. It's the one feeling that seems reliable, that points to a kind of true north in a moment of disintegration and confusion. Heartbreak is something that we all share. Those grievous moments when the world falls apart but doesn't blow away. Those moments that break us out of our comfortable, well, at least known and reliable story of life and open up a field of potential amidst the ruins of what at one point seemed stable. Heartbreak seems like a potent catalyst for change. No, that's not it. It's, it's more that it's a harbinger, a transformation. And does transformation ever not include some kind of dissolution of the previous conditions? Does it ever not include loss and a kind of brokenness? I suspect there are none of us who haven't had our hearts cracked and broken. The question that arises for me is what we do with that. Does your heart break open or does heartbreak close you? Does fear rush in, or does your chest feel with rageful anger or immobilizing grief, or does it sound a call to nourish and care for the creation within which we live? At this moment in time, it seems there's a call to do something, to use this moment to chart a course that'll take us to a better world. I wish I could be sure that what I was doing was the right thing, but I don't know the right thing. I think about how often it goes like this in clinic where I think I'm helping, but I haven't. I think I understand the reality of the situation, but what happens is I find out where I've been wrong. I hope for a heart broken open enough to meet others in a moment, realizing we will never truly understand what it is to be someone else, much less rooted in another culture. It's not that there's not such a thing as ill will. There is, but it's not helpful to ascribe malevolence to what might simply be ignorance. Sometimes, due to good fortune, you catch a bit of wisdom. Years ago, I heard someone say, all people do what they do for a positive intent. That does not mean their intentions toward you are positive. This has stayed with me over the years as a reminder there may be positive intention. It might be possible to connect with anyone, and at the same time, you need to be lucidly aware of dangerous situations. 
there is first the question of should I act? And then there's the question of how should I act? This week, I sit with the how. But first, I sit with a heart that's a little broken and noticing how it fluctuates between anger, grief, and fear, how the heart wants sustaining connection and how it wants to reach out and support others. I suspect that as our medicine suggests to us, being able to move fluidly between phases is what brings health, healing, and resilience. It's a lovely idea, but putting that into practice, being able to hold others' brokenness with the same care that we hold ours, if we can hold ours, being able to listen enough so that we can speak more effectively, being able to not make the other the enemy, even when we're crossing swords. This isn't so easy. Unlike the myriad of social media solutions that have arisen in this week, I have nothing to add. No suggestions for courses to chart. Just a sense of having a heart, again, feeling broken. And at the moment, it's hard to tell if it's breaking open or breaking closed. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. 
And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. We often talk about Chinese medicine as if it was one thing, but it might be better to speak about it as Chinese medicines. Acupuncture is often thought of as one thing, but the vast difference in perspective and method shows us that acupuncture is indeed a multifaceted gem. In a moment, we're going to get into a conversation about doing Dongshi Jianzhou, Dong style acupuncture with Susan Johnson. It's always fun to chew the fat with someone who's worked at their art over the course of a lifetime. You know, I always love learning something new, and I learned a lot in this conversation with Susan Johnson. Let's get into it. Hey, Susan Johnson, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure. I have looked over your materials and, you know, somewhat familiar with the Dong-style acupuncture, which you've been doing for a little while now. 34 years. (laughs) 34 years. How long have you been doing acupuncture? Well, I was licensed in in January of 1985. So, but actually, by the time I got licensed, I had a full practice which, you know, I can only say that now that I'm unlikely to be busted for that. At that time, we weren't really allowed to practice. That was practicing without a license. But, you know, I think it's a good thing to start uh, seeing your friends and family and building your pharmacy. So, and the first rule is uh, you buy your herbs for yourself and then you buy herbs for your partner and then you buy herbs for your family and everybody gets the same herbs, right? Because that's all you have. But it's also true that the first 10 patients get well because the universe wants you to do well. So they give you a few and then they get really hard after that. So anyhow. So you had some lucky breaks in the beginning. I had a vi- one exceptionally lucky break, and it was probably karmic, is that I got introduced to Dr. Miriam Lee. And Dr. Miriam Lee was one of the first, in fact, the first licensed acupuncturist in the state of California. And she was licensed after being thrown in jail for practicing without a license. And at that time, Ronald Reagan was the governor of, of uh, California. And over a hundred of her patients showed up at the courtroom 
to vouch, yeah, vouch for her and the work they'd done and the only help they'd ever received, really. Because, you know, in those days, people came to acupuncturists as a last resort. That wasn't the first place they went. It was the last place they went. So the people she saw were, you know, Western medical rejects, basically. And so when that happened, uh, Ronald Reagan made acupuncture and experimental medicine and we could uh, practice under a an md and then in 1985 i think sometimes i get my dates off uh, but i think that was it was 85 when we were made primary care physicians and we no longer had to practice under an md so meeting Dr. Lee, Miriam Lee, was uh, truly, it was life-changing for sure. She was a pioneer in, in acupuncture. And being one of the first licensed, you know, the, they had honorary licenses. So there were a few MDs and other people who were perhaps licensed ahead of her. But she had the Acupuncture Association of America, which was provider number five, so in the whole U.S., so she, well in California. So uh, anyway, now I have responsibility for Acupuncture Association of America as her primary student, and she was quite the powerhouse. She saw like a hundred patients a day. It was amazing. She had ten rooms, ten tables going at all times, and a waiting room of ten chairs. So she basically had between 10 and 20 patients going all the time. And the reason she could do that was Dong's points. So Dong's points are very immediately effective. So you know if you're thinking correctly, you know if you're on the right track because the response is, is right in front of you right now. If you're not getting a, an immediate response, chances are your thinking isn't right Unless, of course, you're treating something like hepatitis, you're not necessarily going to know immediately. But if you're treating asthma or shoulder pain or, you know, something tangible, you're going to know right away if you've chosen the right points for the right problem. She used to say that you have to have the right key for the right lock. The right key for the right lock. When I was a kid in junior high school, we had to take, boys took shop class, girls took home ec. Remember the shop class teacher I had, this guy with a buzz cut and and he'd always say right tool for the right job boys yeah right <laughs> and that that has that has kind of stuck with me and and you know what you're just saying with our acupuncture it's like right tool for the right job right point for the right problem are we thinking about this correctly how do we know if we're not well number one you're we're not seeing results right so you're not in the camp of oh it'll take three to five treatments to find out if this will help you right i think if you're waiting like that well it depends on the disease so if we're talking about what i would call a structural problem so a structural problem would be a bone issue, a nerve issue, a tendon ligament, a muscle, or a blood vessel. Okay, those would be structural problems. Structural problems, you should have an immediate response. If you're on the right track, if you've chosen the right points for the problem, you should have an immediate response. Now, organ system issues, organ issues, uh, hepatitis, coronary heart disease, asthma, you can tell if you're breathing better, but you're going to tell better after you've gone for a hike, or not a hike, but just a walk and in the cool air. If you're not wheezing, you know you're better. So there are certain things that are you can't tell right on the table, but sometimes you can, you know, and there's always signs. There are always signs. If somebody has a liver issue, I'm going to expect to have sensitivity on the liver channel, medial thigh, 
If I palpate a medial thigh and there's no sensitivity, then it's just not, I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree. It might be, you know, right upper quadrant, but that's, but it's not liver. So there's ways of ruling things out. And so that would be my liver way. So Miriam Lee was a powerhouse. She was. Where did she learn this stuff? She was uh, she she was born in uh, northern China, Shandong province in northern China, as was Master Dong, as was also Wang Su Jen. And Wang Su Jen is a woman that Miriam and I went to uh, China to study with in 1987. Wang Su Jen was a grandmother bleeder. So she taught the two of us bleeding techniques in 1987. And that's also a very important part of Dong's acupuncture. A lot of people don't use bleeding, but it's because no one teaches it. Uh, it's, a, it's not rocket science. You just need to see it done. You need to understand why you would be doing it. So bleeding, it's not like I bleed everybody, because there are many, many ways to treat every problem. There are many roads to Rome, you know, so I'm going to go with the easiest for the patient, probably see how that goes. And if I need a little more help, I might add a couple more needles. I'm going to use the fewest possible. That's a part of Dong's acupuncture as well. Every single point you put in is, 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 is has to be essential. If it's not essential, it's distracting, it's dispersing, it's taking away from the, the ones that are. So these ideas of, you know, people throwing in, I don't know. I mean, people do God-awful things in my mind. Sometimes it's just craziness, you know, 20 needles in a shoulder. First of all, I would never put a needle in a shoulder if I'm treating shoulder pain. I'm going to go to the opposite leg, the opposite end of the body. Yeah, get some leverage on that thing. Yep, I'm going to push the energy towards the problem. If it's deficient, I'm going to bring the energy into that area. Or if it's excess, I'm going to pull it out using the opposite side. Tell us how you do that. It's intuitive, but it's also opposite side. In Dong's acupuncture, we use the opposite end or the opposite side. So by opposite end, I mean if I'm treating a headache, I'm going to be on the feet or ankles. If I'm treating the sacrum, I'm going to be on the back of the head. If I'm treating the right shoulder, I'm going to be on the left leg. If I'm treating the right leg, I'm going to be on using the left hand to push right. towards or to pull away, to tonify or to sedate. So the tonifying and sedating, is that using different sides of the body to do that? Or is that your needle technique that's it's, doing that? Um, it's the needle technique. It would be the needle technique. But the idea of opposite side uh, needling or opposite end, top to bottom, bottom top, is part of Dong's legacy or Dong's claims to one of Dong's claims to fame is using the opposite side, which I have seen in uh, uh, microcosmic orbit kind of things, but it is not something that's very common. It's never taught in acupuncture school, although it is found throughout the Neijing. Now, Dong's points actually predates the Wang Di Neijing, so it is not, uh, it stands alone. However, we can explain the way things are working with Dong's points uh, through using many aspects of the Neijing. So now kind of jumping around, not sure where we are. Well, we're exploring Dong's points. We're 
we were just talking about Miriam Lee and that she got her stuff in China. And, you know, I want to come back to the bleeding for a moment. And then I, and then I want to get into more about the Dong points, where they came from, uh, some ways of thinking about them. I want to talk about the bleeding a little bit. I, when I was living in Taiwan, there was a guy there that was doing Dong style acupuncture. And I spent a little time in his clinic, but it was terrifying to me because he bled everybody and he would, he would like bleed on the back and then he put a, a cup on it with some suction to like really pull the blood out. And I mean, this, there were like buckets of blood. Okay. Buckets of blood. Yeah. It was terrifying. It was really. What year was that? This was in the, this was like 2003, 2004. Really? That recently? Hmm. Yeah, this guy had a clinic across from the uh, uh, Confucian Temple, just right down the street from there. Anyway, it, I, I was there a few times, but it, it, and I suspect he had, you know, quite a bit of knowledge. He had a, quite a few books, but the, uh, but it, it, it just, it kind of freaked me out to have that much blood. Yeah. I, I didn't think I could use that in my clinic in, in the States. It's like, I can't do that. Okay, so really, I want to jump in and just kind of, eh, eh, eh. nah, I'm not doing buckets of blood. Miriam wasn't doing buckets of blood. However, that is, it gets a lot of, uh, I hear that phrase a little too often. It kind of irks me. Sorry, Michael, but it really does because it turns people off to something that is one of the most powerful ways of using traditional Chinese medicine that I've ever seen. I mean, Dong's points, we can do the needles and expect to have some instant effect, but the most profound things that I have ever seen in Chinese medicine were all bleeding techniques. And we are not talking about anything near buckets. We're talking about drops or teaspoons or tablespoons. All right. We are not talking about massive amounts of blood. And I think the, the, the repetition of that phrase needs to stop because it's not accurate. Let me be a little more clear with that then. So he would often do points on the back put a cup on it, pull some blood out. It's just that there were all these cups. There were all these bloody cups in buckets. So let, let me just be more, more clear. It's not that, that you had a bunch of liquid in a bucket and it was blood. It said he had all these bloody cups. And I just kind of, it was just like, oh God, I can't. It was just hard for me to, to feel safe in that environment. So I'm very curious in hearing your experience and and how this can be so helpful. Right. I really am interested in changing your mind frame, actually, honestly, because it sounds like you got turned off a long, long time ago and never went that direction. And that's really, really sad to me because it's not, it, all you have to do is be conscious. You have to be safe and and, and understand sterile technique. I teach bleeding classes. In fact, I'm going to be teaching a bleeding class at Mayway in Oakland in September. So um, uh, if any of your um, listeners are interested in learning some basic stuff, it's just not rocket science. You just need to see it done. So what you're using are bleeding needles, and many of those are not available today. Or what I should say is the bleeding needles you can find on the Internet or through, you know, common supply houses are not quality needles. These are ne have never been sharpened for the most part. You're buying a box of 100 needles that all need to be sharpened with a very good Arkansas sandstone 
you know, uh, sharpening uh, stone. But you can use hypodermic needle tips. So this is what I suggest because they're the, also the issue that we have in California. Are you in California? Where did you say you are? St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, Missouri. Okay. Missouri. Hey, you know how to say it. Heck yeah. I've been around. So yes. So hypodermic needle tips are fine. And in California, that's the only way for us to legally bleed. Now, California led the nation in terms of scope of practice and licensure to be to begin with, even that. So both the West Coast and the East Coast uh, started in and then the middle has sort of filled in. There are still some states that don't license acupuncturists, but in California, they made it illegal for us to use anything but disposable needles uh, some time ago now. So, which is okay. We can get very good quality disposable needles, not like the old ones though. I'll tell you, I found in my cabinet uh, a couple of months ago, a box full of all my old tools. And I just cried when I looked at these beautiful stainless steel, silver handle wrapped needles, gorgeous needles. I mean, you would never have a handle on one of those needles ever break off. Whereas today you can open a box, a brand new, package of a disposable needle and break a handle off right away. So they're not very good quality overall compared to what they used to be. But also I have very beautiful bleeding needles that were a gift to me from Miriam and and also some uh, some other ones that Carol Fong, uh, uh, whose family does uh, import-export of Buddhist texts and interesting things. Anyway, she gave me also some lovely bleeding needles. But you don't have to have those. If you're going to use the bleeding needles that you buy, though, in a box of 100, you must sharpen them. You must sharpen them. Otherwise, don't even think about it. But hypodermic needle tips are fine. Now, the difference is a triangular needle makes like a Mercedes symbol, you know, when you make a puncture with it because it's meant to bleed. Whereas a hypodermic needle tip makes a slit. It's like a lancet. It's, it's designed to close behind the needle when you take it out. So you're going to make a very quick puncture and then you're going to let it bleed as much as the body wants to bleed. And usually it's, uh, it, you know, if, you, if I get a tablespoon, I'm happy with that. Now, it depends on also where you're bleeding. If you're bleeding fingertips you know, dropping blood, high blood pressure, 220 over 120, that patient's not going to leave my office until I get their blood pressure down to a, something reasonable. And then they're going straight to the emergency room. If they've got a 220 over 120, that's a person looking for a serious event. So I'm going to bleed that person, but I'll bleed the fingertips. Now I won't bleed the jing well because they don't produce as much blood and they're very pa- it's very painful. But I'll use the tips and I'll get that blood pressure down and then I'll make sure somebody takes them to the emergency room because some patients have the uh, habit of, you know, okay, never mind, it's good now. I don't want to go. I'd much rather get them off of high blood pressure medications than have them stroke. So anyhow, if you're bleeding fingertips, if you're bleeding uh, the temple area, there's a very good vein. Now, we never bleed arteries, ever, never, ever bleed an artery. If you do enough bleeding uh, over the years, you may, by accident, hit an artery, which is is, uh, characterized by a kind of rhythmic 
uh, spurting of blood. That's an artery. Then you're going to put your finger on that and stop the bleeding and you're not going to start it again. So the best idea is to always palpate your vessel before you put your gloves on. So you have a good idea if you've got an artery or a vein. You only want to bleed veins. If you're bleeding a vein in the temple area, this is fabulous for so many things of the head. High blood pressure, insomnia, mental disorders, many, many things. Herpes in the eye, that's one of the ones I, I use that vein for quite a bit. It's right over the end of the eyebrow is a, a wonderful vein for that. Uh, I'm If I get, you know, five, six drops, I'm happy with that. Now, bleeding at the elbow crease, I'm going to hope for at least a tablespoon. And two would be great. Now, if I'm bleeding the back of the knee, the popliteal crease, we're talking about not bladder 40 or 39, but any vein in that area is fair game. I'm going to expect a little bit more than that because you have the pressure of the whole torso. You also have usually pretty significant uh, dark vein vessels, veins in that area in the popliteal crease. If there's no vein, you don't bleed. Okay, you're not bleeding a point. You're bleeding a vessel. So if there's no vein, uh, it's going to hurt because there's no pressure pushing out. When you bleed a vein, there's some pressure of the blood behind pushing out uh, that counters the pressure of your needle pushing in. And it's, it's hardly anything more than a regular needle prick. Most people will tell you bleeding is not painful, at least mine is not painful. So depending on where you're bleeding, you know, if you're bleeding the sacrum, which is a wonderful area to release the occiput, okay, bottom treating top. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Migraine headaches, that kind of thing, where people are like, oh, yeah, it's migraine, starts in the occiput, you would go for their sacrum. That's right. Now, if it's temple headache, I'm going to actually bleed in the temple area, but I'm going to avoid the artery there. I'm going to find that artery with my finger. So I know where it is, and then I'm going to avoid it. I'm not going to hit the artery. I'm going to look for the vein, but that'll take care. In fact, I had a bleeding class at Bastyr a, a, a couple of years ago now, and that's a, a naturopathic college in Washington State. 
Oh yeah. Oh, my sister lives up there. So I visit there a lot. So the, the guinea pigs are always the students in the class. Those are the volunteers. And in that class, we had two people with migraine headache. And so I said, okay, I'll bleed one temple on each of you. Because when somebody's got chronic migraines, I want to treat that seriously. I, they're not just a demo. This is a person with a problem that's really affecting their lives. So I said, okay, I'll bleed each of you on one side only. Well, about maybe three, four months later, maybe five even. It was a significant amount of time had passed. I got an email from uh, the person, one of the people that whose temple I had bled. He had chronic migraines since he had uh, was a child. I mean, since uh, adolescence. And he was probably in his early 40s. And he wrote back asking me a question. And then as a beside, he said, P.S., I have not had another migraine since you bled me that day. So we're talking about bleeding one side, one temple, probably at the most I got, I don't think I got a tablespoon, probably closer to a teaspoon on that one. And he never had another migraine. So that's, that's what we expect from bleeding. That's why you don't want to not use bleeding. Because we are not talking about buckets of blood. That's a, that is a phrase that I, I'm going to ask you to never use again. Because I think it's unfair. It doesn't really describe the situation accurately. Now, you may, your person, I don't know. I'm a Virgo. All right. I have, uh, I have eight planets and asteroids in Virgo and Leo in the sixth house. So anybody who knows astrology knows that that is all about detail-oriented service, health, health care, all of that stuff. You know, I'm like, I am all over being almost obsessively careful. I try very hard to describe exactly what I mean. If I'm teaching, I'm being as clear as I possibly can be, and I'm making sure that the faces around that I'm looking at are showing me that they're on board. Okay, so in my clinic, we don't have buckets of bloody cups. That never happens. That was the person you studied with who was maybe cavalier or not as fussy. Maybe in China, it's not as, you know... Maybe they weren't as maybe a little less fussy. So I'm very detail oriented and I'm very clean. Uh, sanitation is number one. Sterilization, very. I'm absolutely responsible. I had an HIV clinic in 1980s, in mid 80s in San Francisco. I had an HIV clinic. You have to learn to be absolutely sterile in everything you do and in every way that you think about treating uh, these patients. And now we have the same situation, right? It's not the same, but it's similar. Every, my sterilization, yeah, with COVID-19, my sterilization starts at the front door. Patients come in one at a time. And starting at the front door, they're ushered into the bathroom, they're soaping up to their elbows, and then we are hand sanitizing them. Their overgarments stay in the car, no extra people come in. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being as careful as you have to be right now. If you're going to be bleeding, you need to be sterile with your technique. So I'm not having any cups sitting around with blood in them. Now, when I teach a bleeding class, I, uh, I have to, we talk a great deal about sterilization. It's a number one topic. So the public health nurse here in Santa Cruz County, where I live, uh, tells us that the place to put blood, uh, wet blood products is in the toilet. Because that's what where those things go. 
you know, feces and blood and urine go into the toilet and are dealt with by the sewage treatment plants. So that is where you put fresh blood. Now, dried blood uh, can go in a sharps container or it can go in the regular trash if it's dry, if it's dry blood. But we're not dealing with dry blood. We're dealing with wet blood. So when I cup somebody... I'm going to I'm going to dump that blood into the toilet, wipe it out. Of course I have gloves on. Number 1 is you're not going to you don't want anybody's blood under your fingernails, so you're always going to have gloves if you're doing bleeding and then you put your you wipe out the cup and put it in the toilet, flush that down and then sterilize your glass. You have to be able to sterilize. So I have an autoclave for sterilizing my glass cups. You're not going to use plastic cups for bleeding, unless you plan to throw them away, which is a horrible waste of plastic and landfill and cups. So uh, I get my glass cups at the Goodwill or at the Safeway at the grocery store, you know, caper, little caper bottles or cheese whiz bottles or, you know, you buy when glass cups don't travel very well and I travel all over the world. So when I'm doing a bleeding class, I'm going to go to the thrift stores in the town that I'm teaching in and I'm going to buy my cups, but they do need to be sterilized. And so I don't know, it's not rocket science and whoever you studied or saw, I'm really sorry that that happened to you because I'm probably not the first person you've talked to about it. And every person that's talked to you about that, has now been polluted by that vision that you had of it. I'm sorry that you had that vision because you certainly would not in my office. That is not how I do things. So I just needed to clear that up. Certainly is not the way that I would practice. And it's some, some of the techniques, it's just like, I'm not going to do this in the States because they looked really painful to this, to the patients or Sometimes the lack of sanitation be like, yep, I'm not working like this in the States because we have a different standard. So, I mean, I'm okay with that and I'm clear with that. And I also do some bleeding. You know, I think it's important. I, I, it, you know, usually Jing Wells and then sometimes like the popliteal uh, fossa on the back, right, for the for the low back pain, that kind of thing. Um, and your point, I think, is very well taken. And it's as we're having this conversation that I go, oh, yeah, that's right. We're not bleeding points. We're bleeding vessels. Oh, yeah. No, you have to think about it that way. If there's no vessel, then all you're doing is creating a wound that has to now heal, that the body has to heal. And that's, you know, that's not going to do much. So that I, I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but it. It really makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's one of the things that I heard about bleeding. This is like one of those things you get in your mind when you're first a student. And then, you know, of course you have to clarify your thinking as you go through practice, but you know, we have this whole idea of that there's a chi paradigm. And, you know, if I, if I get some blood out, I'm going to move the chi and I'm worried about the chi. So I'm going to choose this point because I'm thinking about chi. I'm not thinking about blood. What are your thoughts about blood and she that way? Well, you know, stomach channel, for example, has more chi and more blood, mm -hmm. right? When I say that, you know what I mean. And most acupuncturists would know. So the leg yang are very good bleeding 
pathways. UB channel, excellent. Stomach channel, excellent. Prefrontal area headaches, you know, migraine, cluster headaches, anything having to do with the eyes, you can use the stomach channel. And stomach channel has more chi and more blood. So I probably most frequently use bladder channel, stomach channel, and gallbladder channel. Gallbladder channel also has fabulous vessels, but you can see where to bleed. You don't bleed. You look for the vessels on the channel that's related to what you're trying to accomplish. They should be there. They should show up. They will be there. If they're not there, your thinking isn't correct. Right. You might be barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, you're not thinking the right way. If somebody has migraine headaches, chances are you're going to find some gallbladder channel points to bleed. And uh, you don't need to bleed a whole bunch of them. You just need to have one really good one. So the one closest to the surface, you know, that, I mean, we have different styles of bleeding depending on where we are on the body. So there is pricking bleeding, which is more like a seven star hammer kind of approach. There's a straight in, straight out with a bleeding needle that stays the same diameter, the entire length of the needle and the tip is short. Whereas we have uh, larger bleeding needles, which the tip on that needle gets wide very quickly. Those are used for shallow bleeding techniques, like on the torso, on the upper back. Now, you're, I did say something which I'm realizing is not true when you're on the torso. When you're on the upper back, you're not going to see blood vessels there. You're not going to see veins. Rarely will you see veins. So, But all of these points that are also part of Dong's acupuncture are shallowly bled. We don't needle with Dong's acupuncture on the torso. We never needle, actually, on the torso. Using Dong's acupuncture, we do very deep needling on the extremities only. So it's very safe. That's the point of that uh, statement, is that it's very safe. You're never going to poke, you're never going to collapse a lung. You're not going to poke a kidney. Okay, I was watching YouTube the other day on somebody needling in the lumbar region, and I'm and they're like, well, occasionally, yeah, you, if you do it enough, you're going to poke a kidney. I'm like, are you kidding me? Why would you knowingly do that? You don't. You bleed UB40 area, popliteal crease, because that will never damage an organ. So by deep needling on the extremities, we can get profound immediate effects without any risk of damaging the body. And we don't needle into the affected area because even that stands to damage already injured tissue. So I'll never needle into a bad shoulder joint. I'm gonna go all kinds of other places, especially like a frozen shoulder is involving every pathway of that shoulder. So I'm going to be needling on the stomach channel, on the gallbladder channel. I'm going to be on the opposite uh, deltoid shoulder triangle. That's a classic extra point pattern. Shoulder triangle is even in Shanghai text, other texts. I'm going to do that for the muscle, for the deltoid aspect of a frozen so shoulder. That, so that's in a way your way of doing local needling. You're, you're just going to go to the other side and put a needle where the where the issue was. Right. That's not local. That wouldn't be local. That's distant. That's called distal needling. It's it's distal, but it also is targeted toward where that issue was. And every distal needle I use will be targeted, specifically targeted. There will not be one needle placed that does not have a very specific reason for being there. Otherwise, you're screwing it up. 
Yeah, this idea that people sometimes have of, well, I'm going to do a few of these other needles just to cover the bases. I, I liked what you said earlier in the conversation. They're messing themselves up. Yeah. It's distracting. It's dispersing. It's dispersing and it's distracting to the system. Yeah. Because you're not giving it a clear message. If you only need one needle, you only use one needle. And that's the beauty of Dong's points. We minimize how many needles. Two needles. In fact, there's a point we use on, it goes straight across the Thenar eminence from just below the, just proximal to the distal head of the first metacarpal bone. We're just proximal to the distal head going straight across the Thenar, Thenar eminence towards Da Ling, P7, that area. One needle, superficial. It's right on top of the muscle. You can see the tip moving underneath the skin. It's a superficial needle. I use about a 40 millimeter length. Yes, very superficial. For opposite side ankle pain, it is profound. It is extraordinary. I would put it in my top five points, except that we don't see sprained ankle every day. That's the only reason it isn't in there because that point, one needle, is so extraordinary that, you know, somebody can hobble in on crutches and walk out without them. So that point, you know, you don't need to. Two needles is, is going to give you half the effect. One needle is what you need. That's what you need. And if they're walking and feeling better, they don't feel like they're cheated because they only got one. Right. No, they're thrilled. They're thrilled. They're happy to pay you for that. Yeah. Five minutes later. Now you have to leave the needle in. You can't just put it in and take it out. But within five minutes, in fact, I have a I have a DVD set. It's a four DVD set of of the actual needling technique on all of not all of Dong's points, but certainly all of the most commonly used ones. We have a 14-year-old whose aunt was an MD in one of my classes, and she her she had heard at lunchtime that her nephew had severely sprained his ankle during a football practice. And so he came in that afternoon. She asked him to come in and get a treatment from me. I'm like, oh, great, great. But whatever, 14-year-old kid comes in. He's about 300 pounds. He's a linebacker on his football team. This enormous kid hobbles in on crutches. Yeah. So, okay. So for the demo part of that particular point that I just mentioned, it's called Shao Jia is the name of that point. And I needled that on him. And while we're filming, I said, okay, Brian, I want you to really gently now move your ankle around and tell me how it feels. We're talking about 60 seconds after placing the needle. And he said, oh yeah, not so tight. It's not so tight. In 60 seconds, that was his report. So this kid wound up staying the entire rest of the day. He's in the background of all these other movies because he was having fun watching us walking around without his crutches. Now, to me, that's why I call Dong's points magic points. I've kind of branded that name, and some people don't like it. Master Dong's magic points. They don't like the magic. Well, it's not magic. It isn't really magic. There's a way in which every single point is working that we understand, recognize, and know when to employ, right? But it's as if it was magic because this kid in 60 seconds, his ankle's not so tight. And by the time he got off the table, he was done with crutches for an injury that happened that day. So, you know, that's why Dong's points are so profound. They're so profound. Well, there, there's a famous science fiction writer whose name is escaping me at the moment, 
but he, he had this line, something to the effect of, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Oh, nice line. Maybe I'll use that. Yeah, that's a good line. Yeah. So it may look like magic to someone who doesn't understand acupuncture, and it may look like magic to someone who understands acupuncture at a certain level. But if you understand in the way that you're understanding it, the way Miriam Lee understood it, the way often people, after they've been at it for a while, and you just kind of learn stuff over a period of time, it's not magic. This is just the way things work. And you get it that it works this way. It looks like magic because you can't get that effect in other treatments, right? Or other modalities, but it's not magic. This is how the body works. It's not textbook. It's not TCM, textbook acupuncture. It is not. No, it's TCM for sure. It's ancient, actually. It's Taoist. This is the ancient acupuncture. Yeah, for sure. This is ancient wisdom. How can we, if we've got the usual way of thinking about acupuncture from acupuncture school and channels and organs and song fu and you know, all that stuff, how can we begin to take the thinking that goes with style acupuncture and and think about how it works i use my classic training all the time i'm diagnosing with five elements six evils eight entities you can bank on that that is real okay you can bank on that so the trick is understanding how to diagnose and that's going to be true no matter what methodology you're using it's the diagnostic skills that have to be correct. Then you know how to employ the right points. So we are using point combinations that are utilizing internal-external relationships, but also one that is not talked about in acupuncture schools and I believe should be. This is criminal. Is Well, that might be exaggerating a little bit, but not much. We use in Dong's acupuncture, Tai Yin with Tai Yang. Xiao Yin with Xiao Yang, Yang Ming with Jue Yin. Now, this is not common. So I'm talking about large intestine liver. Okay, I'm talking about San Jiao kidney. All right, I'm talking about relationships that are not taught in your basic uh, TCM classrooms even now. Well, well, large intestine liver, I mean, why is poor gate so dang powerful? Yeah. Internal and external wind, right? We're talking about wind. Right. But, you know, if you had, if you were using internal external relationships, you'd be talking about lung large intestine or you'd be talking about gallbladder liver. So we have a different way of thinking with Dong's acupuncture that does make the magic happen. When we employ those energetic relationships, that's what we're talking about. So uh, not not to plug my book, but I just published one. It's a 560-page book. Does it have wheels on it? That's a big book. Yeah, that's a big heck of a book. It took me 30 years to write it. Uh, it's not the one you take to your clinic. It's the research book that you keep at home and study from. But it has all of these relationships for every single point, every single point. And some of them are... 10, 12 pages, you know, stomach 36 and Dong's acupuncture is called four flower upper. That's the name of the point. The stomach channel is called the four flower line. I've got easily 50 pages on the four flower line. So there's a lot of material there, but it's all of these energetic pathways. Your thinking process must be correct. 
if you're thinking properly, those points are going to work like magic. And you're going to understand why they do. Yes, you are. That's the trick, right? So in the beginning, I didn't, I came from Western medicine, basically. My mother was an emergency room nurse and an operating room nurse. My grandmother was a nurse. They all wanted me to go to nursing school. I wanted to be the doctor. I didn't want to go to nursing school. So I went to acupuncture school, much to their chagrin. So the first day of acupuncture school, I'll never forget, 1982, they throw us right into the deep end. Dr. Chung is talking about liver wind. And I've got like, I mean, you know, hypothetically, I've got my hands over my ears and I'm going, nah, 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 stop talking. I, if you keep talking about wind, liver wind, I'm going to need to leave because this is crazy. You're sounding crazy, right? Liver wind. Well, you know, it wasn't very long before I understood liver wind. So now I see liver wind passing me on the street. You know, I'm standing at the bank talking to the person behind the counter and I've, you know, I've got their kidney yang deficiency or I'm looking at their moons on their fingernails going, oh boy, you better run. You better exercise really hard because if you don't, and sometimes I'll say it, sometimes I'll actually say to complete strangers, listen, can I ask you a personal question? Uh, I see you have these giant moons on the base of your nails you even have one on your little finger. Well, if you have moons at the on the little finger, you've got too much energy. And, you know, if they give me permission to talk to them, my next question is going to be, let me ask you, do you have people in your family that live to be 100? And do you also have people that died at 50 or 55? And almost without exception, they'll say, yes, both things are true. So the ones with the excess energy on the, which means you're not supposed to have moons on your little finger. You're supposed to have them on all four other fingers, but not on the little finger. Little finger is too much. That's high blood pressure. That's coronary heart disease. And if those people exercise every day of their life, they will live to be 100 or more. But if they're couch potatoes, eating lousy diet, American diet, they're going to die young. And so, you know, there's signs. And I see these signs now, whether I want to or not. I'm kind of like, oh, God, did I need to know that, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it sounds to me you're looking through the basic fundamentals of Chinese medicine. You're looking through the five phases. You're looking through the six chi. And you're looking through the eight parameters. Call it what we want. Divisions, whatever you Divisions, want Divisions, whatever you want to call it. But here's the thing. This is the basis of Chinese medicine. And when you know how to use that to perceive the world... Then you start to see things. It's not theory anymore. It's not an idea. It's not like, oh, they look like, you know, oh, that's liver wind. You see it, you feel it, you recognize it. You can watch it walk by and body. You're not even looking for it. That's what happens after you practice for a while. You, you don't even want that information, really. But yes, it is what comes. And that's, but that's also the beauty of it. You know, when I sit down with a patient, I have to be still. I need to be still. And this is another big problem, especially for newbies. You know, when you get to be a little more than I say 10 years, 10 years or more, you got something going on. The first five years is, is difficult. You have to study a lot. You study common cough. Well, I don't study common cough anymore. I study, you know, bronchiectasis or, you know, whatever, COVID-19, right? That's my current. So in the beginning, you have to really study a lot more. But by the time you've been at it at least 10 years, you start to feel and see these energetic pathways. And so when you sit across from a patient with a new patient, mm -hmm. you need to be quiet. You need to be still inside and allow that patient to pierce you 
They have to pierce you so that you can feel who is there and what they need because they will tell you people are broadcasting. They're broadcasting what they need, what, what has happened to them, what scares them, you know, what worries them. They're broadcasting all the time. And if you're full of your yakety yakety yak self, you're not going to pick up on that. And that's when you start experimenting, right? But if you're quiet inside and you're listening and you're allowing that patient to tell you what it is they need, what's going on with them, then what they need will come to you instantly. I mean, you will have that information available to you. It is available to you. Now you have to study the points. It's not going to be, a, you can't sleep on the book, Believe it or not, in 19, in, in the 80s, when I went to school, it was 1982. And I, I did now and again stick my book under my pillow because I'm like, oh, okay, we got a test tomorrow and I am not ready. But you, that is not really how you want to study, right? You got to know your herbs. No, you, you, have, you have to do the work. You have to do the work. It has to get into you. Right. But once it does, it's the most beautiful thing. Mm. It is the most wonderful gift. I mean, the privilege of working in such an intimate way with people, I can't imagine having chosen a, a more satisfying and, and touching profession. I mean, it, you know, the patients don't know me. It feels like a two-way relationship to them because I know them in ways they don't even know themselves, right? So, you know, it, it's interesting you should mention that. I find sometimes when I sit with patients these days, and again, this this just comes... I think just through experience and sitting with enough people, but sometimes I'll be sitting with people and I will recognize a resource that they have within themselves. I'll recognize an area of their life or their personality or something that's in them. And it's a deep resource and I can see it. I can feel it. I recognize it. And I recognize that they're not connected to it. And part of them not being connected to this fantastic resource they have is the source of the problem. In fact, often enough, people have a bad opinion about their superpower. Mm, mm -hmm. And the beauty of acupuncture is we can put them back in touch with that superpower of theirs, and now they're connected to it. And that's what takes care of them. It's usually a, uh, a family of origin issue. Somebody's jealousy. Often it is someone in the family having a bad opinion of that part of them. Yes. Yes, I see that all the time. So we can do family therapy with needles. We can. It, I mean, it, uh, I studied uh, Hakomi. I don't know if you've ever heard of Hakomi. Hakomi is a body-centered psychotherapy uh, founded by uh, Ron Kurtz, yeah. who's no longer with us, but who was an amazing human being. And I studied that for about 10 years, actually, right before I was, I almost left Chinese medicine, actually, because to go with Hakomi. And, and right before I took that leap or was about to, Dong's points took off and I wound up getting quote unquote stuck, not exactly stuck, but you know, I didn't go that direction. But with Hakomi, we were taught to contact the person with what is just outside of their own awareness. If you can bring into someone's uh, consciousness something about themselves that they didn't recognize, but do once you say it, once you say it to be true, they can go and explore that. Then you have, you've got them hooked. You know, they know that they're being seen, they're being understood on a level that a lot of people don't get. But that takes time as well. That takes experience. So, you know, don't give up. 
I mean, the first five years, it's a struggle. From five to 10, you start to get some chops. After 10 years, you know, you can be fairly confident that somebody's got got it on board. If they're still doing it, because yeah, those first five are a grind, aren't they? I think they're supposed to be. There, people are coming out of acupuncture schools with these huge student loans, and they've got kids, and they've got mm-hmm. you know cars and mortgages, and they wind up charging for treatments what they can't really provide. You know, they can you can't charge a hundred dollars for an acupuncture treatment unless you've got a slam dunk uh, good result. You know, if they walk out of there and don't ever have another migraine, that will be $100 well spent. But if they've got to come 10 times for you to treat their migraine and then say, well, gee, I think we might need another 10, then I think uh, you're in trouble, you know, in terms of your practice. Well, my experience is patients give me about three tries on something. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you've got to get good results. Uh, But you know what? I swear to God, Dong's points. Just study Dong's points. You will never be sorry. It's so amazing. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Could, could we walk through a case together? I'm very intrigued with how you talk about combining the five phases, eight parameters, six chi. I'd, I'd love to have you like walk us through a case that you've seen and how you're considering each of these elements and aspects in your thinking, in your diagnosis, and in your treatment. You know, because a lot of times people go, oh, okay, it's a menstrual thing, so we use these points because it's for menstruation, blah, blah, blah. That's that's not going to get you very far. It sounds like what you're doing is really digging into these ancient parameters and allowing that to inform your perception. Yes, but now at this point, so we're talking 34 years into this, right? It's going to be hard for mm-hmm. me to tell you that that sequence of thought processes because it's not thinking anymore. Okay, it's gone beyond thinking mm-hmm. now, as well as my mm-hmm. meditation practice. It's about stilling the mind so that you can go beyond the mind. You can grasp what is what is beyond the mind's ability to perceive. So that does happen, okay? It automatically happens after maybe 20 years or so. You know, it starts to come. Maybe sooner. Depends on what you came in with, probably. And depends on the practice and how you approach it. 
But for me, sitting down with a new patient, it's always about, I'm starting somewhere, you know, what's your chief complaint? Why are you here? And there's usually three or four or five of those, but we'll just tease it out. And I'm going to start, as soon as they start talking, I'm going to start putting pieces of a puzzle together. It's like I'm creating a, a photo, a picture with pieces until I see how they are, what they're pre- presenting right this moment, not yesterday, not tomorrow, right this moment, how am I going to perceive what's going on with all of their systems? So as soon as I start to get a sense of it, I'm going to start asking questions along those lines. So for example, if somebody comes into me and they say, you know, I've got migraine headaches, I'm going to to start pursuing that type of migraine. Is it cyclic? All right, number one, is it cyclic? Because any cyclic headache is hormonal. I'm going to know that right away. So then I'm going to ask a question like, um, do you wear sunglasses? Now to you, to somebody else, that might sound like a random question to you, maybe not. So my next question is if they, right, if they say, yes, I wear sunglasses, then my next question is going to be, well, if you forget your sunglasses, do you go back for them? Now, this is not a typical question, but they're going to say if they've got really bad migraines, they're probably going to say, no, I have one in the car, one at home, one at work. I'm not without my sunglasses. So then my next question will be, well, do you wake up at night between 1 and 3.30? I find at liver time, it goes a little bit beyond 3, 1 to 3.30. That'll be my next question. And they'll say, oh, how did you know that? I'm like, well, okay. So I'm kind of already on that on that right track. And so I'm going to recognize that I'll start looking for other signs. But if they tell me, no, they don't wear sunglasses and no, they, they don't wake up between one and three 30, I'm probably going to give up on, you know, the next question might be, do you get breast pain before your period? You know, because I'm, I'm going to give up on that because I've already demonstrated to me that it's not liver cheek congestion. So it's probably not going to, they're probably not going to have, I mean, we might get to that if they're menstruating, I'm going to ask about their cycles, you know, but I would ask a question, for example, do you have cramps? Yes, I have cramps. Well, do you have cramps the day before? Do you have cramp? Do you have um, you know breast pain and and uh, discomfort for two weeks before your period? One week before your period? The day before your period? Or is it actually on the third day of your period? So if it's coming, you know, menstrual cramping is coming on day three. This is deficiency. These are patients. I'm going to say, okay, I want you to have a roast beef sandwich every day before your period the week before your period. I want you to, you know, this is weakness, but a cramp that comes the day before the cycle is always going to be liver cheek congested. So, you know, this is already going to start informing me what herbs. So in my mind, acupuncture and herbs go together. So I was trained extensively in, in, and I still have a loose herb pharmacy. I use loose herbs. I use extracts. I use all kinds of things though. I use CoQ10. I use omega-3. I use you know, all kinds of vitamin D, vitamin K, I use all that stuff. But all those things start to coalesce as I'm talking to the patient, Uh, herbs and acupuncture, you know, there's certain points like stomach 43, spleen 4, P6. To me, this is Mushong Shun Chi Wan, okay? Or this this might be um, Six Gentlemen, all right, that, that's already going to be there. If I'm talking to somebody and I take a peek at their tongue and they've got no teeth marks and a little bit dry, I'm already thinking the way Di Huang. All right, I'm going to ask them, do you get up to pee at night? How many times? If they're telling me they get up six times and they've got a dry tongue, 
I'm already thinking Jirbai uh, Di Huang or Liu Wei Di Huang. So the herbs and the needles, they come together at the same time. So I'm not separating. How do you think about, you know, five elements, six evils, eight entities? I'm not thinking about that. I'm just allowing the patient to pierce me and what they need comes out what they need because of the traditional training. So you have to have that. You need those basics. But you get that in acupuncture school. That's when your education begins is when you graduate. That's the basic stuff, academia. You got to do that part. But then you really start to learn is when you're responsible for another human being's uh, uh, welfare. That's when you really start to learn and, you know, I, I, I'm sorry if I come across as this like Dong's points, you know, extremist or something, but I can't think of a better, easier way to start than to learn that system because it's so effective and it's so easy to learn. It makes sense. Now, you might have to put a couple of years into it. You might. But so what? I mean, anything worthwhile, you're probably putting time into it, right? But it's going to work right away. I mean, you come to a class or you take one of my webinars. I, I'm, I have all of my classes on webinar. You can do it right there at home and get CEUs or, or uh, PDAs for that. It's all, it's all continuing education savvy right now. So you can use it right away. You go back to work on Monday morning. Well, who knows when we're going back to work now. But, you know, you go back to work and start using it right away and start building your repertoire with the stuff that's easy. Yes. You know, build your repertoire, I think, is a wonderful way to say it, because it, it really is that, or it's like learning a musical instrument. First, you learn some notes, and then you learn some chords, and then you learn to put them together, and maybe some different strumming patterns or finger. I mean, it just takes time. You've got to build up the vocabulary, in a sense, and you have to build up the experience so that when someone comes in, you go, oh, this looks like that. Look at that. They It's a cloudy day and they walked in with sunglasses. Okay. I got a few ideas right off the top of my head. Or it's a cloudy day and they walk in with knee pain. You know, what is that going to tell you? Kidney, liver. Okay. It could be both. Tendon, ligament, bone. You know, there's so much to know. It's so exciting. I swear this is such a good profession. I'm so, so grateful that I stepped into this when I, I was 23. I was actually, there was one person in my class a few weeks younger than me, but we, we were the youngest in our classes. And, and it's been a life of, uh, I'm going to be 62 this year. It's, uh, it's been an amazing, amazing uh, life. So you will never be disappointed. Well, and never bored. Never bored. Never bored. Never bored. Mm. Right? I mean, anytime someone says, oh, this is getting kind of boring or it's tedious, I'm thinking, what are you doing? Or what are you not doing? What are you not doing? One of the things that uh, I think is, uh, there are a lot of people, even uh, sometimes I have people ha that cover my practice when I'm gone for long periods of time. Sometimes I have to have my practice covered. Well, if you're seeing how much you can do in one day, those patients are going to be thrilled. Now, you have to be careful not to crash. You have to not crash. If you're doing Dong's acupuncture and throwing in textbook acupuncture, you're going to crash. Because if we're doing opposite side or opposite end needle techniques, you've got to keep those energetic lines perfectly clear. If you muck that up, you're going to get a big fat zero and charge somebody money for that. But I also find that, you know, I'm doing as much in one treatment as I can possibly do. Because I have people that are coming to me. I just had a patient, interesting case, 
perimenopausal woman came from Kansas City to get treated for horrific neck pain. Well, I knew I had two weeks. I had two weeks and three treatments a week because I'm only in my office working. I work every day, but I'm only in my office three days a week. And so I had three days a week to offer her that six, six treatments to deal with a very severe neck, neck issue. She had a, she had a disc uh, replacement, not a fusion. She had a disc replacement. Well, they're doing these things now, these prosthetic discs that are very problematic. And it left her with excruciating nerve pain down her arm. I mean, her life was, you know, ruined. She couldn't do anything with her life anymore, taking drugs and a very bad situation. Very sweet woman came all the way from Kansas City. I'm going to work my butt off for her. I'm going to do everything I can do in one treatment without crashing, which means she's going to be at my office for two hours easily, maybe two and a half. I'm going to cup her. I'm going to needle her once or twice. I might bleed her. Did I bleed her? I, I did not bleed this particular patient, but she left in perfect, it would 90% better in two weeks. So she was probably 50% better after her first treatment. I'm going to expect that. If I don't get 50% in a severe situation the first time, I have to rethink, what am I missing here? So anyhow, if you pick the right treatment and you do as much as you can in every session, not as little as you can. So that was the point that I was making, that if you're only doing the minimum, then that's not how you build a practice. I've never advertised in my entire life. I've never advertised word of mouth as your best advertisement. And if you're doing everything you can without overdoing it, you can't make the patient tired after the treatment. You can't weaken the patient. Right. Overtreatment's an issue. You have to be conscious of that, but not enough <laughs> doing not a, you know, here's a person when I cupped her neck, it was black. Now you can't do that within, with any confidence within six months of a severe whiplash or a cervical fusion or a surgery of her type. You cannot cup the neck within six months of that with any kind of a confidence. Okay. You've got so much inflammation in there already. You, you may actually wind up with a worsened situation, but she was more than six months out. She was about a year out. So this patient was black. Her neck was black. And I told her ahead of time, listen, this is going to happen. This is going to be painful. It's going to be painful during. It's going to be painful after. But I know you. I have your number. Well, I got her number because I've had three fusions in my neck myself. So I really know. So you have some experience. I do. I had severe stenosis in my neck. So I was able to say that too. Listen, I know what I'm talking about. It will be worse. It will feel worse. But if you're black, it will feel better. If you can give me this two weeks, I will get you out of this. I promise you I will get you out of this. But it right away, you're going to think you got hit by a truck. Well, that's kind of counter to what I just said. The patient has to be 50% better. Well, I knew with her, she would be black, and she was. Her cupping cup marks were really dark, as dark as they get. I had to do that. Which you would expect to see. You know you're on the right track. Right. They would have to be after that surgical situation and also the, the end result was severe nerve pain. She was taking nerve blocks and stuff. So we had to do her whole shoulder girdle eventually. So slowly, one piece at a time, each time she came in, I cupped another part. And then the last time she came in, not the very last, but the time before that, I cupped her neck again and it was 20%. So the first, what I mean is that the color was 
of the color that we got the first time. So cupping is not something you do over and over. And she just wrote me yesterday wanting a refill on her herbs from Kansas City, but she's telling me that her problem is 90, 95% over. Yeah. She has her life back. She has her life back completely. So if you're not willing to do what it takes, then you need to send the patient to somebody else because I knew it was going to be hurt. It was going to be painful for her right away, but I also knew what the outcome would be. And I had to convince her of that. So there's a kind of midwifing of your patients that you need to do too. You need to be present for them and what's going on and what you're going to be doing. But you can't do that kind of stuff unless you know it's going to work. And that takes time and experience. Yes. And especially for something like this, you recognize, oh, there's a certain process that we're going to be going through here. So you would expect to see like that super black cup mark. That's not a bad thing. That is diagnostically significant. We'll, we'll revisit that. But yeah, it, it takes it takes time to build up that repertoire, as you were saying. I put together a trifold uh, color brochure to give people about cupping in my practice that I'm going to be cupping. And you open this trifold up and the whole inside page says freedom from pain. And it shows on the left-hand margin, it shows cup color on day one, day three, day five, and day seven. So it's showing the very worst black, black, black cup color slowly going away over, over the period of a week. And then it talks about why we're cupping somebody, about the toxin buildup in the muscle or in the joint that we have to get rid of. Now, if you're not going to cup that patient and they're coming all the way from Kansas City to California, you're not going to be done with this case in two weeks without cupping. Because if you're trying to move out that level of toxic buildup using acupuncture needles, it's going to take you a minimum of 10 sessions. A minimum. Whereas if you cup them first, pull all that gunk out and then needle opposite end. So we did points called correct tendons on the back of the Achilles tendon bilaterally. Okay. We have two Achilles tendons and one neck. So we use both feet. It's not an opposite side thing. It's a middle. It's an in the neck. It's in the middle. So I use both legs, correct tendons on both legs. After pulling out all that gunk, then I shore up the area. Get that stagnation out first. Yeah. And that's how you can handle a case like that in two weeks. She'd been suffering for years. She was just miserable. So anyhow, you know, yeah. So I have this trifold brochure that explains all of that, that they can also take home. Now, I made that brochure because of the woman who came to me years ago, an arborist. So she's a tree person, right? She works on arbors, trees. And she came to me unable to move her neck. She could not turn side to side. She could not look up or down. I cupped, did the same thing for her. I cupped her neck. Now, I don't always do that the first treatment, but if since somebody is in excruciating pain or if I have a limited number of treatments, I'm going to sit with them until they feel confident about my process of cupping them because it is going to be painful during and after when it's that bad. Okay, so I cup her neck. I put her down uh, on the table. I do correct tendons, and they, those needles need to be in for an hour, which is why sometimes patients are in my office for two, because if their needle treatment takes an hour, it takes an hour. If you take the needles out too soon, you don't get the benefit. How do you know how long to leave needles in? That can be intuitive, but it also depends on what the issue is. You know, if you're working on something really severe, you're not going to put needles in for five minutes or 10 minutes. But if I have to do somebody during a lunch hour and they've been coming in for a 
long time. I can do a 20-minute, half-an-hour treatment if I need to. And I might choose different points depending on that time uh, constraint. But this person got off the table, turned from side to side, cried because she hadn't been able to move her neck like that in so many years. Then the next day I came back to work. I got a message on my phone machine that said, if I weren't a better person, I would sue you. I'm like shocked. I mean, I want to cry myself. I'm like, I gave her you so much of my time, so much of my energy. I fixed your issue. She went home and her family convinced her that I had abused her. Oh, because of the cupping marks. Yeah. Didn't matter. She could turn her head anymore. So I made this color brochure with a beautiful, you know, one of my, you know, lovely people on the front cover with cups on her back, like a Gwyneth Paltrow person. Thank you, Gwyneth, for all you did for cupping. And then I had a whole description of what we do, why we do it, what to expect. And then on the back panel, aftercare. And as soon as that was printed, beautiful color brochure, I sent one to her in the mail and I said, you know what? Thank you. Because of you, I made this brochure. I will never have a message like that again. I never heard from her again. It was terrible that, that, that somebody could take that and ruin it that way because, you know, she wasn't done. I mean, she probably needed a few more treatments at least, but yeah, it was sad. It was sad that she went there with it. But the end result was I had that trifold to give the one who just came to me. Well, you know, this is how we learn from our experience and we learn to get better at what we do. Sometimes things don't work out. We think, hey, that was great. And then you find out how it was perceived and you go, okay, all right, I need to do a little bit of uh, extra information exchange so people can understand what's happening, right? Because we do weird stuff. That's why they call it magic. We're not supposed to fix everybody either. Not everybody is meant to be your patient. I mean, I figure if they make it to my door, I'm supposed to do something for them. But if they're not on board, I mean, I've fired patients before. If they're not good patients, I can't waste. I'm too old now. Used to be I could handle, I could treat stop smoking and stop drinking. And, but now, no, I send those people on. I'm not, I don't have the bandwidth for that anymore. I would say that as time has gone on and I have learned what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And, and also to some degree, what I'm interested in putting up with and what I'm not interested in putting up with. Then when, when people do call and they go, can you make me stop smoking with, with acupuncture? The answer is acupuncture can't make you do anything that you don't want to do, that you don't want to not do, right? It's like, if you want to do it, I can't change your mind on that. You need to make that decision. I Once you've made that decision, I can help you. Otherwise, you should probably go see someone else. I've had patients stop smoking with one treatment, you know, but they have to want to stop. You got to want to. That's what we say here in Missouri. You got to want to. Yeah. So I've got patients like with psoriasis, you know, if they're not willing, I mean, maybe somebody can treat that without dietary changes. But if I've got somebody with head to, head to toe psoriasis and they're not willing to stop sugar and alcohol and caffeine and spicy. Okay. And I might even add gluten to that and maybe dairy, but at least we have to do no sugar, no alcohol, no caffeine, and no spicy. If they're not willing to do that, I'm going to say right now, you're just going to be wasting your time and money. But if you're willing to do what I tell you to do, I'll have you out of lifelong psoriasis within a few months. That doesn't have to be a big deal. But, you know. Yeah, it's fun work, isn't it? Uh, that part is not my favorite part. 
No, but I mean, helping people is, is the fun work. Yes. Getting results is always really fun. <laughs> Getting results is fun. I find sometimes when it comes especially to dietary stuff, I will often refer them to someone who's kind of a, a coachy kind of person or who is really good at holding their feet to the fire because that, that's just not what I, I don't like doing that. Other people probably do it pretty well, but that's not what I do. So it's, you know, it, it's good to know what, what you're good at. And I'm a loving person. I try to be a good and kind person, but I'm not going to mess around. I'm going to give it to them right straight. And, you know, and I have a guy, diabetic, came in with a sore on his foot that had not, would not heal. It had been four months and this sore was not healing. And he's diabetic, taking metformin. And I told him, listen, you know, you do everything I tell you. And we will get not only heal your foot, we'll get you off of metformin. Well, his foot is now healed. It took us about, it did take us about mm, two months, but, but he had to completely change his diet. And his, he did, and his wife did with him. And I put him on herbs for diabetes and we're going to get him off of metformin probably the next time he sees his uh, general, his GP. We're hoping because his blood sugars come way down. So he doesn't really need it anymore. So, you know, you do the right things, you get the results. That's the bottom line. You do the right things, you get the results. Period. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end this conversation. That That is that. Yeah. You do the right thing. Say that again, what you just said. Uh, just simple. You do the right things, plural, often you get the results. Do the right things. You get the results. I don't rely on faith. I don't want anybody's faith. I tell them that right from the get-go, including the students. I don't need your faith. I need your time. I need your commitment. You try it out. See for yourself. You get the results. You don't believe me. I don't need you to believe me. I need you to try it. And then you'll see for yourself. So that's the beauty. Judge by your own experience. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been great. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It. Thank you. Me too. I'm very excited about reinvestigating bleeding. Please. And uh, and, and tell me a bit of, just tell us real quickly about your book real quick, 500 pages. Yeah. It's called Master Dong's Magic Points, A Definitive Clinical Guide. It's volume one of two. I'm working on volume two now. Okay, volume one is the big fat research book that's got everything there is to know about every single point in Dong's system. Okay, it's got the it's got a beautiful photo. It's got a lovely drawing to illustrate the point location. It has a very well thought out point location. So if you learn by reading words, you can get that. It's got all the indications. It's got contraindications. It's got tons of commentary. And then uh, on all the points, a lot of commentary. It has a 16-page double-column index. So we are talking about as thoroughly indexed as you can imagine, single-spaced. Now, if you want a glimpse of it, you can go to my website, dongspoints.com, and you'll be able to sign up to get 10 excerpts, very meaty, really significant points, excerpts from the book. You can, you can get on a once a month, you know, if you sign up for the excerpts, you just get one delivered to your inbox once a month. We don't hound you. And then you can see the offering of the book itself. Now, and also you can download the index. You can just look at it if you want, but you can also download it and really see what is in this book. 
Now, volume two is going to be the one that you take to the clinic. So volume two is going to have all the theory in it, but this one is organized by disease. So you'll find headache, all the different point possibilities for headache and when you would use which ones, all the different point possibilities for sciatica. We probably have 10 or 15 different ways to approach sciatica and when would you use which one. So the second book will be organized by disease rather than, you know, numerically by points, anatomically by points. So anyway. All right. Well, Susan, again, thank you so much for this time today. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed uh, hanging out with you. I hope we get to do it again, even not on the air. Just, you know, let's have a conversation now and then. I like you. That sounds good. Take care. Isn't it amazing the variety of ways that acupuncture can be practiced and be helpful? I sometimes have patients ask me about what kind of acupuncture is best. And what I usually end up telling them is, the acupuncture at its best is one that you know how to practice. We have such a wealth of methods and perspectives, so many ways that we can be helpful. But it does take some work on our part to learn the ins and outs of any particular system. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.